Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, host of the Scene Vault Podcast and the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I spend most of my time locked away in the studio here, but this weekend is my chance to finally get to meet and greet a bunch of you. Come meet me at North Wilkesboro Speedway this Saturday. I'll be at the Moonshine and Motorsports Trail booth in the fan zone at noon. We'll have a show truck there and some cool giveaways as well, so come check us out and say hello. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. Wasn't the first deal they built, I bet. No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce, of UNC Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then. The guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. You know, Jeff is a—he's been a driver all his life, right? So he didn't—he knew the driving part of it. He didn't know the owning part of it. So trying to coach him along the way, they let me go. You know, that tore me up. I was so furious. 
Alan's loss is the biggest loss of my life. From a family members or whatever, you know, that's the hardest thing I've ever went through. You know, I've always been a racer of some type, you know, and then don't really know anything else. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, anybody who knows me knows that I love the Andy Griffith show. And, uh oh, uh oh. Nip, oh. It, nip it in the bud. <laughs> Listen, just because I taped every episode on VHS, just because I bought every individual season on DVD, just because I bought the complete series once that was released. Just because I bought the first season again on Blu-ray when it was released, just because I've led Andy Griffith's show, Bible Studies, Steve, it's got to be close to 100 times now. Just because I've gone to all these lengths, people get the impression that I like that show for some reason. I told you earlier to nip it and nip it in the bud about all this. <laughs> but I understand where you're coming from. You know Steve Richards, correct? Correct from PRN. Yes. He owns a radio that was once owned by Francis Bavier, who was Aunt B. Aunt B, yeah. And for years now, Steve has loved holding that over my head. I've offered him everything in trade for that radio. <laughs> but so far, he honestly did say that he was going to leave it to me in his will. <laughs> <laughs> So, Steve, if I were you, I'd have somebody check your meals for you. <laughs> but on one of the Andy Griffith Show Facebook groups that I frequent, a guy by the name of Frank Cacavalli posted a photo of a car that Dave Blaney drove at Charlotte in the fall of 2010. And, Steve, I did not know that this existed. It was an Andy Griffith Show paint scheme complete with Andy, Opie, Barney, and Gomer on the hood. I don't remember that at all. Well, I can tell you this. If I had known about that car, it would be my number one all-time favorite paint scheme ever. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Frank has the hood off of that car. Oh, really? Yes, he does. So, Frank, if you're out there, Hey, Frank, you want to make some big money? <laughs> <laughs> Frank, if you're out there and you're listening, let's work a deal, man. I want that hood and I'll trade you a cannon for it. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Frank. Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the third and final installment of the interview with Paul Andrews. And Paul this week talks about Jeff Bodine, Jeremy Mayfield, Rusty Wallace, and a really bad week that he personally had in which he was released as Bobby Labonte's crew chief at Petty Enterprises. And then just a few days later, he wound up suffering a really bad fall at his shop that left him uh, listening to the injuries that he sustained. He's lucky to be here. 
Yeah, I remember that vaguely, but I remember that tough time for Paul. Then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the May 26th, 1994 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That issue featured coverage of that year's the Winston Select All-Star Race, which was won by Jeff Bodine in the seven car. And that was the team's first win following the loss of Alan Quickie the year before. Yeah, and that was a pretty darn interesting race that Jeff pulled off the win in because it looked like it, from the start of the race, he wasn't going to have much of a chance at all. But a certain trick in the way Humpy conducted that race sort of made the difference. Humpy Wheeler with a trick? <laughs> a gimmick? What? <laughs> Say it ain't so. <laughs> Humpy Barnum. <laughs> As Steve, finally this week, we have new Patreon support from Jimmy Dyke, Jeff Macon, and John Zerke. So, Jimmy, Jeff, John, hey, JJJ, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club, guys. Thank y'all for coming on board and helping us out and helping support the production of this podcast. We appreciate it. Every little bit helps. We say it every week, but every little bit helps and you are part of the team now. So thank you. So support us on Patreon on a monthly basis, support us on a one-time basis on PayPal, support QWare, support Brian Kelb. And look, you will get all kinds of papers. We actually have some, Signed Steve Wade tracks rookie cards back in stock. <laughs> oh my goodness. So the bottom line is helping to preserve NASCAR history. That's what it's all about. That's what's most important. So that's what we're trying to do here at the Same Vault Podcast. So if you can, please help us out on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the podcast. Jeff Bodine eventually bought the team. Right. <laughs> How much of an adjustment was there in working with him? You know, Jeff is a—he's been a driver all his life, right? So he didn't—he knew the driving part of it. He didn't know the owning part of it. So trying to coach him along the way and and uh, get what he wanted in the cars. He had his own little uh, mindset, you might say, on what he wanted in a car. Things he things he did, things he wanted to feel. Uh, so trying to get those things going, you know, and then fill him in on what we had for for inventory of cars, you know, and then uh, that was kind of more of a. I wouldn't say a learning curve, but, you know, he had to learn the owning part of it, the ownership part of it, and we had to teach him the, uh, you know, what we had. Not teach him, but just let him know what we had and what we were doing in this track and that track. And, you know, he wanted to give his input on what to do or what he – maybe he – you know, road course racing was – he was pretty strong in road course racing back then, and, and uh, we built a special road race car, you know, for him, for Watkins Glen, and then uh, – Sears Point then, and then uh, anyway, I, I think he came on after Sears Point. But we'll, I think we might have built a road course car for him for for Watkins Glen, you know, that that year. And uh, I know we did for the next year for sure. But uh, yeah, it's just trying to just inform him more than anything else. I think is kind of what we did most of all. Uh, different guy to work with compared to Alan. Alan was his own own person, you know. So uh, you know, he left. Uh, Car-wise, it was 100% whatever I thought I needed to do, and he'd give me a little input on setup, you know. Uh, so that was a different adjustment for me, you know, because that's not what I've been doing, you know, all, all, 
all my life with Alan, you know. So it's kind of like, here's what I want to run, you know. And then when we get there, then we kind of adjust from there, you know. And uh, so, it, you know, we went off, Alan and I went off history, what we've done in the past. And that's kind of how we did things, you know. Uh, it was it was a different different deal for sure. Uh, he was there every day, every day, uh, you know, of, of the, uh, you know, you know, trying to make things run from a business standpoint too. You guys became the basically the flagship team for Hoosier yeah. the following year. How big an issue was that for you in setting up the car? You know, uh, it actually was not bad, but, but. <laughs> with that being said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, uh, we tested a lot. I don't, I don't remember how many races there were in 94, in 94 but uh, if, there, if there was 35 races, we tested 37 times. Wow, double. I mean, yeah. We, so we had double the schedule. So, uh, so the tire was different. It needed. It had its own uh, want uh, things. But once you kind of got that figured out, and, and obviously we worked close with the Hoosier engineers, uh, you know, and I knew the construction we had going to a test, and I knew the construction we had at the light. You know, so I, once we kind of got along there or they, when they had construction changes I was there I knew every bit of the construction change we had and was part of the not necessarily decision process but part of the process on deciding what tire to take you know um, and then of course when we come back to the racetrack there was no now when you go do a tire test and you know you don't know all the little small ins and outs even when I go to do a general tire test tire test for ARCA right now you know, it's still, you know, you don't know all the ins and outs. Back then, I knew everything. You know, I was informed every step of the way, you know, and, and that helped. So so being able to set up those cars for that, and that, that tire liked a few, had a few things it really liked, especially on the intermediates. You know, had a few things it really liked that most people wouldn't have done, you know. So so that was, uh, I wouldn't say made it easier, but it helped, you know. Even though it about killed us, because <laughs> the same guys yeah. that tested are the same guys that went to the racetrack. You wow, know? <laughs> wow, that was a great year. You know, we had a we we, uh, we had won, won a lot of races. Uh, you know, we had some had some problems, we had some failures. Uh, you know, unfortunately, and because we, we were we were on, was, if you could look go back and look at our finishes where we were running when we had a failure. You know, we'd have won the points by hands hands down. You know, especially with the old point system back then. So, yeah, it was. Uh, it's a shame we couldn't capitalize on the on the championship for Jeff back then. Nineteen ninety seven, you get a deal to go to work for Penske Racing as Jeremy Mayfield's crew chief. Right. How did that come about? Actually, it was still Cranfus Haas. Okay, yeah, because right. Haas because uh, it hadn't made the Penske transition yet. So yeah, it was Cranfus Haas, Carl Haas. You know, being the the Haas part of it. Um, and uh, that was, uh, you know, Jeff and I, we, we didn't really see eye to eye on a few things. He was definitely struggling getting sponsorship. Uh, so, you know, and then, uh, you know, Michael Krampus, which was head of Ford when we, um, uh, when we won the championship. So, we, you know, had a small relationship with him. So, you know, we, we knew each other. And uh, that's kind of how that started. And Jeremy called me up and, that's got, you know, basically said, you know, told me everything had going on. Michael told me everything had going on. It sounded like a good opportunity, you know, so, and that's what I did. Yeah, that was, uh, I thought it went good. We got what, Jeremy's first win. <laughs> that was always good, um, you know, so uh, uh, then shortly after that, it went to, I think the next year, it might have went to Penske Krampus, and um, I think Carl wanted out of the out of the program a little bit, whatever it was. Uh, Carl and uh, Michael were good friends still, but 
I think Carl wanted out of the program. Wanted to focus more on his IndyCar stuff. Uh, and so anyway, that was uh, and it worked out pretty good. Really, we had had a good relationship then. At some point, Jeremy became teammates with Rusty right. at Penske. Right. And from everything that I've ever heard, Rusty wasn't exactly thrilled with having a teammate, or maybe he wasn't exactly thrilled to have Jeremy as his teammate. I don't know. I was just on the outside looking in. But what was actually taking place so, from your standpoint? You know, we had a lot of rule changes back then. And um, what you ran last year or last race didn't really necessarily mean that was a, that was the deal you need to run. And Rusty always, this is, again, I'm on the, kind of on the inside listening to their side, you know. So I know what we're doing, but he didn't like what we were trying to do. You know, he, we were trying to get, you know, more aggressive with the front ends. and trying to, well, That was a, what we called the five-and-five five rule, you know, five-inch balance height and a five-inch uh, um, spore height. So that was a different deal to handle. So that's when soft springs started coming up in and bigger bigger sway bars, you know, and uh, that wasn't what we run back then, you know, and, uh, you know, before all that, you know. So it was a new new era of rolling in right then for five and five, and Rusty was struggling. Again, I'm just taking this from the guys. Rusty and I didn't really Rusty and I didn't talk about that a lot. You know, we didn't talk about it, what each other was ran setup wise. It was like there's a you know we had the two car and, and the twelve car, and, and we were in different shops. We're teammates. A lot of things common, but you know it wasn't really necessarily you know that was uh, that we you know they shared all the information. They knew what we did. And, and Rusty didn't like it. <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> I've never talked to Rusty about that. <laughs> was it an awkward position for you to be in, it given yeah. your relationship with it, Rusty? It was, for sure. You know, Rusty and I have never, ever not got along. You know, we've always got along, but we haven't really been really close to each other since the ASA days. You know, we hadn't been, we know, go, go out to dinner and stuff like that. We always talk and we're always friendly. You know, to this minute, we're all the same waves, but we're not ones that, you know, we're not buddy-buddies, you know, so... We didn't talk race cars that much. You know, very seldom did we talk race cars. But so it was awkward for sure, absolutely, you know. Um, but Rusty helped Jeremy a lot, you know. I know back to Rusty being Rusty telling everybody his secrets. Uh, I mean, he helped Jeremy a ton at Bristol. I mean, on how to get around, how to drive Bristol. And then, uh, and, and, and even though they didn't, may not see eye to eye on some things, and then we went to Homestead. Yeah, Homestead for a test. And this is also at the same time period, you know, they had a Penske chassis and we had a Penske, Penske, uh, or Penske Kravitz chassis because we each built our own chassis. So all that kind of is internal feuding, not really feuding, but internal thing, battles going on, you might say, on what chassis we're going to run. And I think we went to Homestead. Uh, we had our Penske Kravitz chassis and, and the Rusty had his Penske chassis. This is when Roger owned, Roger Penske owned Homestead. And you again, you're able to test whenever you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, we went to Homestead, and uh, and uh, we were slow, you know. And and even though we're testing this chassis, trying to figure out whose chassis we need to go to for the next season, because this is toward the end of the year. Uh, Rusty's over there. You need to drive. He's looking. We had data on, which we always had data back then. We had data on. And he said, "You need to drive it this way. Look at my throttle trace." You know, he brings Jeremy <laughs> over and shows him his throttle trace. So it wasn't like there was, you know, this big. He still helped Jeremy, and Jeremy did what he could. And Jeremy tried to tell him his reasoning behind his thought process, you know, in, in, in our in our chassis stuff. But uh, you know, our chassis setups, we, we were we were one of the first ones to do the, do the soft springs and the bigger bars and all that good stuff, which is way beyond what we're doing right now, you know. So, 
you moved over to Dell Earnhardt Incorporated to be Steve Park's crew chief about a third of the way into the 1999 season. How did that work out? Yeah, so that worked out really well. So just, you know, Jeremy was wanting to win races, and, and uh, he was at the same time looking for his divorce right now. So he was uh, he had changed a lot of quite a bit, and, and Michael Granvis thought I wasn't – wasn't the guy for him anymore, so he wanted to, they let me go. You know and that tore me up. I was so furious. You know I was just furious. I didn't really see it coming, uh, which you know was my fault. You know I should have seen it coming. You know and Jeremy sponsored my my kids' uh, little bandolero cars. You know so it's like you know and I thought we were everything was good, but you know he done a few things that I didn't care about, and Michael asked me about them, and, and I told him. And next thing I guess I did a couple of things that Jeremy didn't care about, and and uh, Jeremy told Michael. Next thing you know, Michael says, "You're out of here." <laughs> wow. Okay. So yeah, that was uh, so that was like uh, whatever day it was, you know, probably a Monday or Tuesday or something like that, and I was furious, you know, just tore me up, made me more upset me more than anything else, it just maybe hurt me more than anything else, just because of what happened. So anyway, you know, Robert called me up, Yates, and and uh, and uh, somebody else called me up, and, you know, um, and then Dale called me up. <laughs> he said. Come see me now. <laughs> Being the, the way Dale is, you know, he said, so I got to do something. No, you need to come see me now. I got to get on a plane in a few hours. You need to come see me right now. I said, okay, I'll be right there. <laughs> and that's how it worked out. That's how I got there. Uh, Ty Norris had been, uh, been uh, you know, called me up before that, you know, and I said, I just, I really can't wait a second. You know, I said, the next thing I know, Dale's calling me up. So I went up there in Dale's office and uh, with Ty, and, you know, I was still furious about being let go. Uh, but anyway, all that being said, you know, Showed up with Steve and, and uh, didn't he, hadn't even met Steve. Knew who Steve was, obviously. You know, hadn't even met him. You know, but uh, next thing you know, I'm within hours. I'm in, walking in the next day. Actually, not even that day. When I was in the office right there, he hired me. He drug me down to the apparel room. Give me some apparel. Give me a, a, a <laughs> few other eyes and ends and put me to work. You know, it's like wow. He, showed, he went and showed me around and told me. I said, "Here's here's your here's where you work. Here's what you're gonna do. Here's your people. You know, he, you know, introduced me and like you know, here I go. You know, this is like, I mean, my my wasn't hours after it was like less than less than two days or something like that. But yeah, we showed up to showed up to uh, you know to, to the Winston Open race and the one Winston Open with Steve and I think we had a test there if I remember right. Yeah, I think we had a test and I uh, bought a few things that we had been doing. Uh, you know, uh, some of my shocks that I've been doing for over there, and then uh, you know, applied them to that, and just you know, just things clicked really. You know, we uh, made a few changes along the way, car-wise. You know, just kind of my thought process behind them, and then uh, you know, we started running really good, really. You know, and then uh, Dave Sharpentier was an engineer there, which is a long-time uh, engineer uh, in, in the sport. You know, worked with Alan, knew Alan, who was a data engineer with Alan, so I had a relationship with him already. You know, knew him. And uh, him and I got along really well. Um, and Bono Manion, Ke- you know, Kevin Manion, Bono Manion was was there. He was a, he was a car chief. And then, uh, uh, you know, just was, we all hit it off. You know, Steve and I, Steve and I got along great, and uh, we hit it off. And just and I thought we had great performance, really. You know, what was it like working for Dale Earnhardt? Ooh, it was tough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I heard this the other day. He he carried the. Carries the Intimidator, uh, uh, logo, or you know the, the nickname. Well, you know he, he is intimidating. You know, he, and, but you know, that's what he was back then. He was, he walked into the room, where they walked in the, in the room with board members, or he walked in the room with crew members. You know, he was, you get, he got your attention. You know, and you paid attention to it to him. You know, so that was, uh, that was neat. 
you know, I'll, I'm really glad I got to be a part of that the uh, program when it's successful, you know. So, but uh, you know, he was uh, he wasn't hard to work for because you didn't see him that much. You know, you see he come through the shop. He's always there in the mornings uh, coming through. If he was in town, you know, he'd always be there in the mornings. Uh, Sometimes we usually had a morning meeting. Sometimes he'd pop in in a meeting, you know. So he's always there. You see him a lot, but you didn't see him on interact. You didn't interact with him from a working standpoint, you know. Um, the one time that I we went to Daytona was terrible. Almost missed the race with Steve early on. Might have even been that same year. I can't remember exactly. And I'm complaining like hell about the motor program and just to tie an horse. Boy, he come to me the next day. He was I mean, the next no, no, when we, that Monday. I mean, uh, he was so mad at me for bitching about the voters. <laughs> but we're gonna fix that. He said, "We're gonna fix that problem. Don't you worry about that no more. Don't complain about it to racetrack anymore either." <laughs> <laughs> and he did. You know, we, we know they devoted more money in the in the, you know to the engine to restrict plate engines. So that was one thing about him. You know, if you you had problems, you felt like you know they needed to address. You know. From a company standpoint, you know, whether it's bodies, you know, they addressed it. You know, they worked hard. It was, that was a good group of racing people, you know, a good group of racers, as you hear a lot. You know, you always hear that term a lot, you know. So, uh, but that was, uh, that was, that was neat working for him. Uh, like I said, very intimidating, but by no, for sure, you know. But, uh, you know, you, you've learned to, uh, you couldn't, uh, if you had something to say, you had to say it. You know, you, you know, if you had a feelings that you need to, you need to be help, said, you need to say it, you know. If, uh, even if it was to the point of, you know, we just need a little more money, a little more budget right here to, to go do this, you know. And that's what, you know, nine times out of ten, he's going to go work on that budget, you know. And that's like the restrict weight motor program, you know. That that was, by hands down, one of the best restrict weight program, motor programs we had back then, you know, as far as in, in, in the industry. Again, another tough question, and I apologize, but 2001 Daytona 500, what do you remember about that day? Golly, it was crazy, isn't it? Um, you know, it's one of those deals where you just didn't want to believe it. You know, you just did not want to believe it. And uh, we heard pretty quick that we, you know, through, uh, I don't know if it's through Dale Jr. or what it was, we heard pretty quick that we had lost him, you know. And then and, and that was, you know, it was devastating. Just unbelievable, devastating. Just couldn't believe it, you know. Many times if you... Watch somebody wreck and watch wrecks. It wouldn't be one you'd think you'd lose somebody's life. You know, that was it was just devastating. My my wife and uh, two little boys were there. We had a motorhome there. Um, they were all there, and, and they I had to fly back. <clears throat> you know, we ended up delayed the plane on leaving, uh, but still flew back. And then, you know, and you know, just it was just devastating. You know, still is. The sport misses him too, for sure. Was there a sense for you? that you had been through that because you had experienced something very, very similar right. to that. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. It was, uh, wasn't any easier. That's for sure though. It was, uh, it was definitely tough. You know, Alan's loss is the biggest loss of my life from a, you know, from a, you know, family members or whatever, you know, that's the hardest thing I've ever went through. You know, Dale's is a tough, tough loss because he's so big for so big in the sport and such a big individual from a, you know, just a, you know, carried so much clout and everything. Just to lose him was, you know, just unbelievable. The very next week at Rockingham, Steve takes the team to Victory Lane in one of the most emotional races that I've ever experienced. Tell me about that weekend. 
That was. That was a good race, you know. Um, <clears throat> you know, that was, uh, I believe we tested there, but I can't remember that one. That's way back before the, you know, before Daytona. But, um, you know, we unloaded the good car. We had a really good package back then. We done did a little bit of testing to get us to that package <clears throat> that we had. Um, and, uh, you know, knew we had a good car, you know. Um, just um, was up front. You know, I don't know if we led a lot of laps or how that went down, but I know we were up front the whole day, you know, uh, in, the, in the top group. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was really cool. You know, Steve had a lot of drive. Steve has a lot of talent, had a lot of talent, you know, back then. <clears throat> and uh, just, you know, unfortunate with his accident. I know that will be another subject, but uh, but had a lot of talent then. You know, we were moving, man, we were building a, big, a great team right then, you know, at that particular time period. And even north of Los Dale. Um, you know, that was going to be a, a good, successful year, really. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. You go to Darlington for the Southern 500, and in the Bush race, he gets in this really bad freak accident. Absolutely, yeah. With Larry Foyt, and he gets hurt. At what point did you realize how serious his injuries were? You know, we went to the hospital that night. <clears throat> First of all, we had to uh, – you know, we've seen him race, and, and uh, Ty Norris was, you know, general manager then. And, and uh, so we had to we had to say, all right, we've got to get a driver for the car for tomorrow, you know, because Steve's not going to be able to make it. That's kind of all I knew at the time. That's all I knew, you know. So, okay, well, you know, who are we going to get, right? So it's like, you know, to me, the, the, the choice was – I was the one that brought up Kenny Wallace, you know. Not because of that relationship with the Wallaces, it was because of his, his history and his background and the races we had coming up thinking, okay, this is a one or two race deal. And quite honestly, it was, I thought he'd run really good at Darlington, you know. And um, so obviously it ended up being a lot longer than that, you know. So when I w when we went to the hospital that night after everything is all over and I think after the, the Bush race we put Kenny in the car, see if he'd fit. That's another reason because I thought their build was similar and be able to fit in the seat. So anyway, we uh, really didn't realize how bad it was we went to the hospital that night, you know. We heard – that he was hurt, but you don't really realize, okay, so they tell you you're hurt and tell him he's in intensive care, but that don't really register until you walk over there and you see it. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, wow, then it registered. You know, this is this is bad, you know, and had no clue. And I don't think any of us did at the racetrack until that night when we went to the hospital. You know, it was, it was crazy, you know, how bad he was. So, Was there ever a point, maybe after Alan, maybe after Dale, maybe after Steve got hurt, that you considered walking away. You know what? This yeah. this just isn't worth it. Right. You know, I don't think so. No. Really? I didn't. Uh, I mean, you know, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's just so much. I mean, racing's all I've ever really done other than my, you know, high school childhood, you know, is when I did other things, you know, and a couple of, a little bit after that. But, uh you know, I've always been a racer of some type, you know, and then don't really know anything else. <laughs> but not that I couldn't go do something else. Well, other than vacuum cleaners. Yeah, yeah, vacuum, <laughs> yeah, vacuum cleaners and real estate, right? So, uh, yeah, I don't think that's ever really approached me or thought, but wasn't a thought process back then, you know. Yeah, you get aggravated with the, you know, with the Mayfield Cranfield situation. That was very, very heartbreaking, you know. Um, and, you know, but you don't really think about the part of, like, I'm had enough of this, you know. It never, that never really crossed my mind back then. Um, you know, you probably should have, but <laughs> it didn't, you know. I always wanted to be a racer and always want to, you know, always want to do what I do. 
2002, you did move over to Roush Racing, and then there were some other jobs in there, and you did go to work for Petty Enterprises. Right. 2007, you're released by Petty Enterprises as Bobby Labonte's crew chief, and then within days, <laughs> you have this really bad fall yeah. at your shop. That was a really bad week for you. That was a tough week, yeah. <laughs> what happened? So I'm... Uh, uh, have my little little shop that uh my my son had his uh or or uh, East car back then you know uh K or Arca car now I guess and then but anyway had his uh Bush East car there and we were getting ready to go to Dover so you know we only worked on that on the weekends and our or, or weeknights and and uh, whenever we get spare time we both had a full time jobs so so anyway um uh, he and his uh, buddy of his were just got to the shop that afternoon. And uh, pushed the car outside to do some body work. So, all right, while that car's out of the way, I really need another light right here, right where the car was sitting. So I got my extension ladder out in a 20-foot ceiling <laughs> and uh, got a drill drill gun and then ended up, uh, you know, with a pushing up, which is obviously pushing down on the on the ladder, and ended up uh, the ladder slipped. That's what happened. And then I went down. So then I landed uh Landed up. This is the doctor telling me this. I don't remember a dang thing. I remember that. This is like at 7 o'clock at night or whatever it was. And uh, I vaguely remember a couple of the petty guys coming in to see me because the wind tunnel is right up the street. And they come to see me because they knew where my shop was. You know, to say how bad they felt that I left, you know, and they, they hated it and all this good stuff. You know, I vaguely remember them coming by the shop. That was at 1 o'clock, you know, in the afternoon. <laughs> And uh, that's that's what I remember of that day. You know, that's where my day ends, right, right in that time period. So anyway, I fell, or the, the doctor told me I jumped off the ladder when it started slipping. He said I probably jumped off because the way my injuries were. I, I shattered shattered my right, my left heel completely, just destroyed it, and then uh, uh, compression fracture my back and concussion, and uh, and uh, my upper that was my low, my L3 is my compression fracture, and then screwed up some. Upper upper part of my back also, and then uh, anyway, it was uh, it's a bad day. I remember uh, about I don't know. It was probably uh, I think they told me it was one or two o'clock in the morning. It's when I remember started remembering things, <laughs> and that's when the big guy was at the end of the bed setting my foot. <laughs> he was like, "Ah, you're killing me." <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Yeah, it's funny now. Funny, funny. Uh, it wasn't funny then by no means, but it's funny now telling the story, you know. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a life, that's one of those lessons where that's when I wanted to walk away from everything then, you know, because that was that was a, that was a lot of pain, you know. I was I was in trouble. Uh, well, you were going limp away. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. <laughs> yep. But yeah, it was. Uh, that's quite the experience, quite the week. <laughs> what are you doing these days? So running our race team. Uh, I crew chief the team and then help the owner run it, which owner is he's, uh, new and only the team. He's only on it for two years, Chad Bryant. And uh, it's funny that uh, I hired him as a crew chief, you know, for Cunningham Motorsports, which is what the team used to be called. Uh, I hired him as a crew chief, and the next thing I know, he owns, owns the thing. But the Cunninghams <laughs> and another partner wanted to get out of the racing. They'd had enough. They were both older older people. They'd kind of had enough. And then, uh, Anyway, that's kind of the next thing you know. He's buying the thing while I'm in Mexico on vacation. <laughs> but it's a few things that fell through on uh, other people buying it, and he didn't want to see it go to waste and, and uh, go away. And that's what was getting ready to happen. So he ended up buying it, trying to make a go of it. And he's been doing it for about this is the third year right now. So it's been going good. So that's what we're doing. Work hard, that's for sure. It's a lot of work. We uh, do some of the things work, things same things we've always done. You know, 
you know, but uh, just uh, fewer people on this on the, the Arca side, uh, so you got to work more hours and all that good stuff. So that's tough. Hello, Scene Ball Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Ball Podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Vault Podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault Podcast. And at QWare, we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. Steve, I understand that you weren't in the room, but you were a part of the press court at that time, a very big part of the press court at that time. So what do you remember about the negotiations that were taking place to buy Allen's team? Well, it wasn't a very public thing. I could tell you that. I know that Felix Sabatis was right in the middle of it. And because he had been the executor of, uh, of Allen's estate and, uh, Felix uh, did not say much, but he gave me the impression that he was going to hold to his guns and get the best deal he possibly could and hoped he would give it to someone who was a veteran in NASCAR. He definitely was not looking for any outside sources. I know that Hooters came in and they wanted to put Lloyd Allen in the car, and that was a source of a lot of controversy back then, because again, like we said last week, that's nothing against Loy Allen, but at the time he just wasn't ready. Now he was winning Arca races, right? And he was doing well there, but it's a big jump from the Arca division all the way to cup. And especially to a team that had literally just won the Winston cup championships. Well, this is where Felix was really sticking to his guns. Yeah. Felix told me personally, that Alan once told him that if anything happens to me, I want you to give that ride to Jimmy Hensley. He's a good driver. He's tried so hard for years and never really got a break. I want you to give him that break. That's exactly what Felix was going to do. And he told the Hooters people that. He, they said, well, Jimmy Hensley's not a Hooters kind of guy. And Felix said, well, I don't care. This is what Alan wanted, and this is what Alan is going to get. Well, and another factor I think that was at play was – you weren't going to tell Felix Sabatis what he was going to do. <laughs> well, no, of course not. <laughs> and that meant if you're a prospective buyer at this time, you had to measure up to what Felix expected you to be to take control of Allen's team. He didn't want to hand it off to anybody that nobody knew. Steve, what was the reaction to Jeff Bodine taking control of Allen's team? Uh, kind of surprising. No one really knew Jeff was on the prowl to own a team. I have the feeling that he and Felix must have talked and reached a mutual agreement for Jeff to take over the team. And certainly with his experience 
in racing, and Jeff did own modified cars. Uh, that made Jeff a very viable candidate to take over Allen's team. Paul said that Jeff basically left the building of the cars up to him and that Jeff would give some input on the chassis, but compare that to Alan, Steve, who was basically involved in every area of constructing a car from the ground up. So that put a lot on Paul's plate. It sure did. And kind of wonder how Paul felt about it. I mean, this was going to be a new enterprise with an owner that was not, definitely not going to be the total hands-on guy that Alan was. If you look at it that way, then I think that Paul had a bigger job to do than he once did. Well, I'm sure that he enjoyed the freedom. Sure. Because basically he could do what he wanted to and not have... I don't want to say that Alan was looking over his shoulder, but in essence, that's the way it was doing. Well, well you're right about <laughs> you're right about that. But now, when you have a different type of owner, it's all on Paul, not him responding to what the owner wanted. And then there was the Hoosier tire factor that came into play in 1994 when the seven team became basically the flagship team for Hoosier coming back into the sport. And this is what kind of struck me, Steve. Paul said that for every race on the schedule, they basically had the same number of tests, not necessarily testing for each and every race, but just going out and doing test after test after test. Now, Steve, I can't imagine what that schedule must have been like for the people who were doing those tests and going to the races. That must have been absolutely drop-dead exhausting. Oh, it must have definitely been. It had to be a lot of pressure, too, because let's remember, Hoosiers coming back into racing, a lot of times they had to be done to prove that the Hoosiers could match up with the good years or even be better. So that added more to Paul's plate, for example. Paul moved over to Cranifus Haas in 1997, and he helps get Jeremy Mayfield his first win and then the team merges with Penske Racing, and Jeremy becomes a teammate with Rusty Wallace. Now, Rusty was able to provide Jeremy with some guidance at some tracks. I think he showed him the ropes at Bristol, according to what Paul said. But I just don't think that that was something that Rusty was exactly thrilled about in having a teammate. And I don't think that's anything against Jeremy necessarily. I don't think that he would have liked having anybody as a teammate because i think a rusty is the very essence of old school well that's the way it always been for rusty he was the driver and he had a lot of success doing it that way so i don't think he was very comfortable with this at all and steve paul was very open and honest and frank about telling us about the palace intrigue that kind of happened in the relationship between jeremy and himself kind of fraying a little bit or a lot or whatever happened. And Paul wound up being the odd man out and was fired. And that left Paul without a job, but fortunately it wasn't for very long. He immediately got picked up by Dell Earnhardt Incorporated, where he became Steve Park's crew chief. And I love Paul's description <laughs> of how he got hired by Dell Earnhardt. He said that Ty Norris called him up and Ty was, he was like the general manager at DEI yeah. at the time. I'm not exactly sure what the job title was, but Ty was the guy 
at DEI and help him make those kinds of decisions. And Paul told Ty that he couldn't make it right then. For whatever reason, he just couldn't make it when Ty asked him if he could be there. Well, the next thing Paul knew, Dell called and said, come see me now. <laughs> I got I, I, I to gotta leave. I got to leave here. On, I got to leave here in a few hours and I, I don't have much time. So come see me now. <laughs> and so Paul said, yes, sir. And he went over to DEI. And before Paul knew what was happening, Dale had him in the apparel room, getting him hooked up with all kinds of pencil stuff. And then he was taking him through the shop and introducing him to everybody. And that was that. And before Paul knew what was going on, before Paul knew what had happened, he was Steve Parr's crew chief. (laughs) (laughs) Came there now to hear about a job and left there with a job. Now you talk about a quick turnaround. Steve Paul had gotten Alan Quickie his first win. He had won races with Jeff Bodine. He had gotten Jeremy Mayfield his first win. He got Steve Park his first win. That's a pretty nice little resume there. That shows you Paul's real ability as a crew chief under different circumstances. Paul Andrews had been through the nightmare of losing Alan Quickie in 1993. And then came the 2001 Daytona 500. So he goes through pretty much the same exact situation all over again. Yeah. Very, very tough. Here's what hit me about this interview as much, if not more than anything else that Paul said, he said that losing Allen was the most difficult thing that he had ever been through, even after losing members of his own family. And he said that in talking about Dale. Well, here's the thing. There was a strong bond between Alan and Paul. And the reason that was is because, you know, Paul was not the crew chief, first crew chief that Alan had. Alan was difficult to work for because he was a perfectionist. Paul was the man who served Alan the best. And as a result of that, they bonded because one felt they could not succeed without the other, which turned out to be the pretty much the case during Alan's career. I think it's important to note that when Paul said that losing Alan was the most difficult thing he had ever been through, that's nothing against Dell Earnhardt whatsoever at all period into discussion. But at DEI, Paul was essentially an employee. Uh, The team was already successful when he got there, but with Alan, he had basically helped build that team from the ground up. Now, Alan had raced in 86 and 87 without Paul, but Paul was still there through the thin years. He was there when Alan won his first race. He was there when Alan lost the sponsorship. So he had been through all that. He was there when Alan won the championship and he was there when Alan, of course, lost his life. So they had basically built that team together he and Alan were tight. They were like brothers. And then, Steve, it all came to an end on that hillside going into Bristol. That's what I mentioned earlier. Yeah. That's why it was so tough for Paul to lose Alan. You're right. They were like brothers. They had that bond. And certainly that bond didn't exist for Paul anywhere else. After all these years, 
Paul is still working in the sport. He is working in the ARCA division with Chad Bryant Racing, which fielded cars for a number of different drivers this year. He's still in the sport, maybe at a little bit more relaxed pace than what it is in the cup division. But Steve, the bottom line is this. After everything that Paul Andrews has been through, he deserves it. I think he's very happy and content where he is now. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, this week it would be easier to list the things that Brian did not list. <laughs> <laughs> he did not list a Bobby Hillen Trap Rock Industries t-shirt, which I am still looking for. But other than that, Brian put it out there and it is available. Looking at his inventory is literally like walking down the concourse at a Winston Cup race in the 1980s or 1990s. All you got to do is look at Brian's stuff. And after you see it, sit down and catch your breath because you're going to need it. <laughs> and fan your pocketbook because it's going to go. <laughs> So again, listeners, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the May 26th, 1994 issue of Winston Cup scene carried coverage of that year's all-star race, which at that time was known as the Winston Select. And Steve, just 13 laps into that race, Sterling Marlin got into Jeff Bodine coming off turn four. Jeff spun down the front stretch and then looped his car. And Jeff said in your race lead, I figured we needed to add to the show and we did. I guess Sterling had got up outside me and I didn't see him and give him enough room. I got tapped and spun around. Thank God no one ran into me. We didn't hit anything hard, just a little grass and slid through some asphalt. It tore some fender braces off and we had to repair them during the first stop after the 30 lap segment. And Steve, at that point, it seemed like his night was over, at least when it came to having a shot at the win. Oh, contraire. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> that spin put Jeff near the back of the pack for that first segment, but then Charlotte being Charlotte and Humpy Wheeler being Humpy Wheeler, fans were able to vote on whether the field should be inverted for the start of the second 30-lap segment. <laughs> and, Steve, I love this. Of the 10,164 votes that were cast, 9,036 voted to invert. Now, the only question that I have is what did those thousand people that voted for the <laughs> field to stay the way it was, what were they thinking? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. They lost in a landslide. <laughs> and that is the most that we will ever talk about any election here on the St. Bob podcast. That's it. <laughs> Jeff started third in the second segment, and on a lap 54 restart, he shot into the lead for the first time. 
turn four on the last lap of the second segment, Ernie Irvin looked to the high side and then dove under Jeff as they came off the corner. There's $50,000 on the line to win that segment, and Ernie Irvin is going for it. Ernie got into the grass at the start-finish line, but he couldn't maintain control, and he crashed. And it looked very, very eerily like Davey Allison's wreck at the end of the 1992 All-Star Race. And, Steve, you kind of said what was what in your race lead. (laughs) You kind of let it hang out a little bit there, didn't you? <laughs> well, it certainly looked like Ernie uh, goofed, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> Screwed the pooch, whatever. <laughs> in your race lead, you said, in a move described as everything from stupid to crazy, Irvin <laughs> shot to the low side of Bodine in the front trial. There was precious little space, and Irvin's left side tires sped onto the grass. His Ford shuddered, broke sideways, and then went into a long backward spin that didn't end until his Ford <laughs> slammed into the wall. Now, okay. In a okay. move described as everything from stupid to crazy, come <laughs> on, man. <laughs> no more be said. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you really thought. Okay. <laughs> Jeff responded and said, Ernie tried to get under me coming out of the fourth turn. He got down in the grass. I don't understand that. I wish he hadn't wrecked because I think he would have added to the final 10 laps. I don't know if I could have beaten him, but I think I could have. Now, Steve, it paid $50,000 to win that segment. That's not chump change. That's a nice little paycheck. But you also have to consider that to win the race – it paid $200,000. Now, money was the motivation of the wins and select. No question about it, because there were no points. So what are you racing for? Money. And when you race for money and not points, you are going to take some chances, which is exactly what Ernie did. Now, sometimes taking those chances doesn't pay off at all. Ernie said in Deb's sidebar, I screwed up, basically. It was one of those deals where I had to move him up out of the way or do what I did, and what I did didn't work. I should have waited for the next 10 laps. And later, Ernie added, Jeff moved up in front of me, so when he did, instead of lifting right then, I went to the low side. Jeff came down and took the racetrack. I ran through the grass, but there's not enough traction in the grass. It was just a dumb move. I should have been thinking more. I guess I just got caught up in the Winston. It's been pretty wild tonight, and I guess I just didn't want to miss out on some of it. Now, I'm going to give Ernie a little bit of credit and say that he had a point saying that he got caught up in it being the Winston. True, and that was my point earlier. I firmly believe you wouldn't get caught up as much as you might if the money was not that kind of money. That's a motivational factor, no question. Ken Schrader and Sterling Marlin both passed Jeff in the early stages of the final 10-lap segment, but he came right back and got by Schrader in turns three and four for the win. And Jeff said, we made adjustments to our tires and our car during the break between the segments. We had the chassis just right, and the car could run right at the bottom of the track all the way around. Kenny slid a bit high in the turns and left me an open door. 
I went through it. And after taking the checkered flag, Steve, Jeff did a backward victory lap in honor of Alan. But he said that he would never do it again. Jeff said in your race lead, I felt sure Alan was with me over those final laps. We're sad because we had to make the backwards lap. A little over a year ago, this team was Allen's. We did that lap in honor of him, and we dedicate this victory to him. But that's the last victory lap we're going to do. We've got to put that behind us. He's resting, and we've got to put the lap to bed, too. Jeff wasn't the only one that took that post victory lap after Allen passed away. But Jeff made a point of saying that it was time to move on. And I think it was exactly right. As much as fans loved that Polish victory lap and what the honor meant in Allen's memory, I think you do reach a point where you have to admit that if you keep doing that, you're not moving on. And you got to change. There's no question about that, Rick. And I think that's what Jeff was trying to tell us. And Steve, for whatever reason, when he first came into the sport and when he and Dell Earnhardt were banging fenders, Jeff Bodine was not one of the most liked drivers in the field. He got a lot of boots. Yeah. But I think when he took over Allen's team and when he paid that kind of respect to Allen and when he did that backward victory lap, I think that softened a lot of people's opinions about Jeff. I think it certainly helped. No question about it. Paul talked about working with Hoosier in this week's interview, and this was that brand's first win in its return to the sport after the late 1980s. Another accomplishment Paul has a hand in. Dale Earnhardt and Rusty Wallace got together on lap 20 of the second segment, and they crashed on the front stretch. Dale got out of his car at the accident site and (laughs) evidently had some beer poured on him by some fans. (laughs) Those are some brave fans, man. (laughs) (laughs) Those fans must have been very, very mad for them to waste their precious beer like that. (laughs) He got out of the car, had the beer poured on him, and then he made his way over to Rusty, who was standing outside his hauler. And Steve, uh, there were no crosswords. There were no water bottles that were thrown. They just talked about what had happened. Now, When Dale got to Rusty, he said, I turned you. Oh, is that what it was? (laughs) Yeah, but you were sideways, and then you started back. And then Rusty replied, I know. I went into that corner. Dale interrupted and replied, then I got into you. Then you went up. Then you came back down and got me. And Rusty said, it don't pay no points. To which Dale replied, it don't pay no points. (laughs) (laughs) And that was that. And Steve Dale had spun on the last lap of the all-star race a couple of years before 1992, which allowed Davey Allison to get that really famous, infamous, iconic run on Kyle Petty coming into the checkered flag. And Dale wasn't mad after that one either. So I guess you had to be Bill Elliott or Jeff Bodine (laughs) (laughs) for Dale to get mad in an (laughs) all-star race. I, w- I would agree with that. <laughs> what was it about Dale that he kind of laughed off those kinds of things in the all-star race? That's the point. It was the all-star okay. race. Now, it's all about money. I've said that this whole podcast, but that's the truth. 
So when a driver is in a, in a race that pays no points and he takes chances or he makes mistakes, you know, they got to shrug it off by saying, hey, man, we were just out here trying to get the money. It didn't hurt our season. Therefore, let it go. This newcomer wound up winning the Winston Select Open to get himself into the night's main event. That newcomer, that rookie, that fresh-faced young driver was Jeff Gordon. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And Jeff said, oh, it's great. It's wonderful. Just to be in the main event is a big deal. And I'll tell you, that Open wasn't easy. There were a lot of guys running good, especially when you race against the Hoosier tires. And Steve, the very next week, Jeff Gordon won at Charlotte in the 600. 600, yeah. And he never looked back. That's true. That's true. And he broke down and cried in victory lane after winning that 600 because it was such an emotional moment for him. Winning a Winston Cup race was his life's goal. And he did it in the longest race on the circuit. And you're right. After that, no looking back. And Steve, I don't know if Jeff ever had to run the open again. I don't think so. I don't either. But it was just different. It just seemed odd to see coverage of Jeff Gordon in the open before the main event, before the all-star race. Well, this was his formative years in Winston Cup. He was really just getting started. We've talked about running his first race in Atlanta in 1992. This is just two years later, and he's still building. But starting with Charlotte the next week, man, things started to go fast for his career. There was an 11-car crash in the open that left Michael Waltrip with a broken shoulder blade and Louis Allen with bruised ribs. Ward Burton accepted blame for the accident, which was triggered when he got into Dave Marcus, who had taken over the race lead by staying on the track during the previous caution. And Ward said, I got into him. I guess I'm the culprit of the problem. I didn't mean to cause anybody a problem. I'm just doing the best I can. I don't mean to cause other people problems, but I'm doing all I can to get into the Winston. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. But, Steve, there were also those who kind of pointed the finger at Dave Marcus for staying on the track. Chuck Bound was driving for Bobby Allison at the time, and there was a story in this issue about the two dealing with a team that had no sponsorship. And, Steve, Chuck got turned on his side in this melee. And so, yeah, he got caught up in this wreck bad. But Chuck said, I guess Dave thought he was going to hold us off for 25 laps on 25 lap tires. (laughs) 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 To which Dave replied, I hate this race. (laughs) Every time I come down here to this thing, this is what happens. That was my car for the 600. (laughs) And Steve, one more thing about the Winston select open that year, something that I thought was pretty unusual. Billy Hagen had hired Dell Earnhardt's pit crew to pit John Andretti during the Winston Select Open. And David Smith, who was Dale's jack man at Richard Childress Racing, said Billy told Richard that he had a good crew, but they were a bit slow, and he wanted to give John every chance he could to let him win this race. And unfortunately, John got caught up in that big multi-car crash and finished next to last in the 36-car field. But Steve, I thought it was unusual that one Winston Cup team 
would hire another Winston Cup team's pit crew for the Open. Well, kind of makes you wonder what the morale of Hagen's team might have been like at that time. Well, it kind of makes me wonder if I'm on John Andretti's pit crew and the Richard Childers pit crew comes in to pit the car and John does get into the Winston all-star race, the main event, I don't know how wholehearted I'm going to be doing this pit stop. Well, I agree with you 100%. Like I said, it's got to affect the morale. You're not going to try hard, I would think, at any time if you suspect that your owner doesn't think you're doing the job. Yeah, I don't know what was going on there or what the circumstances were. But speaking of John Andretti, there was a feature in this issue on John's plans to become the very first driver ever to compete in the Indianapolis 500 in Indy and the Coca-Cola 600 in Charlotte on the same day. John said, what's important in doing all this racing is the racing. I want to do both. I want to do the Indy 500 and I want to do the Winston cup series. Why not see if I can do it? And John did wind up doing both races, right? John finished 10th in Indy 500 driving a car owned by AJ Foyt. Then he flew down to Charlotte. He helicoptered into the track and I'll never forget the side of him landing there. Didn't he land there on the, the tribal? It did indeed. And then he finished 36th in his Billy Hagen on car, I think after an accident. John said, last year, I was walking around Indianapolis without a ride. Uh, this year, I've got too many. <laughs> <laughs> well, he makes a point, but I'll tell you what, a noble effort on his part to do both races in the same day, which, as you know, has been tried more than once since. I think Robbie Gordon has done it. I know Tony Stewart has done it. Right. Uh, anybody else? I, I can't think of anybody. No, Kurt Busch didn't. Busch did. Kurt Busch. Yeah, Kurt Busch. He did it. So that became kind of the thing to do. That became the end thing to do there for a time with a certain caliber of driver. Right. My good friend and amazing colleague, Tom Stinson, had a piece. Excuse, me, excuse me. May I interrupt here? Yeah. Could you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> I was I wasn't gonna let anybody in on that. <laughs> a little side joke here. <laughs> okay, all right. My good friend and amazing colleague Tom Stinson had a piece on Jimmy Spencer in this issue, and it centered around the controversies that Jimmy had found himself in that year, and that was the first year that he had driven the twenty-seven car, the McDonald sponsored car for Junior Johnson. At North Wilkesboro, Ken Schrader had gotten into Jimmy and he had spun. And then Jimmy responded by ramming into Ken's car, not once, but twice under caution. And then finally spinning him at the entrance to pit road. Think he was mad? (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Spencer? (laughs) Letting his anger get in the most of him? What? (laughs) That's so unlike Jimmy. And speaking of this car. There was an auction for Ronald McDonald's Children's Charities of North Carolina at Charlotte the week of the Winston All-Star Race, and Frank Zamarippa of Los Angeles paid $3,300 for the hood off of Jimmy's car, and he said that he was going to put it in a McDonald's museum he planned to open. I did a little bit of a deep dive on Frank, and evidently he is a big, big big McDonald's fan. He has what would have to be the world's foremost collection 
of McDonald's memorabilia. And at Charlotte, he added the hood off of Jimmy Spencer's car from North Wilkesboro to his collection. Well, you got to love McDonald's to do something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Zamaripa also paid $4,300 to have his name on the side of Jimmy's car in the Coca-Cola 600. So he spent close to $10,000 at that one auction. Must be nice to have that kind of money. (laughs) But if you're a McDonald's man, what a better thing to do than to be part of Jimmy Spencer's team. So there was North Wilkesboro that Jimmy had gotten himself into trouble. Then there was Martinsville that same spring. And at Martinsville, Jimmy spun, (laughs) Jimmy spun four separate times. Well, they didn't call him Mr. Excitement for nothing. (laughs) Then at the first Talladega race in 1994, Jimmy stuck the nose of his car between two lines of traffic. He got into Terry Labonte a little bit and he triggered a 12 car crash. And Jimmy in this story replied, I'm not going to question the move. If I can have a chance to win the race, I'm going to take the chance at winning the race. I'm not going to say, geez, I better not do this because somebody's going to criticize me for it. I'm not going to change my style of driving in that respect. And junior, the car owner said, Jimmy has a better understanding of what needs to be done and where he's headed and so forth. It's basically for me sitting him down and telling him, you know, some of the stuff you're doing is wrong. I think he thought it was somebody else's fault when a lot was really his fault. Now that is junior today and down the word right there. Now, what he said in that quote, I'm sure was a lot milder than what he said to Jimmy at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm sure that the two of them had a sit down, come to Jesus meeting, but by the same token, junior was still going to take up for his driver. Sure. And after Talladega, Jimmy had taken some heat from different people to which junior responded. I can understand Terry being a little mad about it, but where did Rusty Wallace, Ernie Irvin and Dell Earnhardt get into that? <laughs> They're not all shiny and white. They're damn selves. <laughs> <laughs> and on that one, junior is exactly right. <laughs> and Steve, what's so funny about that quote is I can hear him saying it. Sure. In that Junior Johnson voice of his, they're not all shiny and white. They're damn. (laughs) Jimmy went on to win the first Winston Cup race of his career at Daytona just a few weeks after this issue was released. And then again at Talladega a few weeks after that. Tom Stinson also had a feature on Fireball Roberts. He was racing's first superstar and the 30th anniversary of his accident at Charlotte. At Sears Point, a couple of weeks earlier, before this issue came out, Dell Earnhardt had just walked into the media center, and he started talking to the media. No press conference moderator, no nothing. He just pulled up a chair and leaned it back against the wall and had questions fired at him. Wasn't the first time he'd done that either. Somebody asked if he had any kind of workout or training program, and this is (laughs) Dell Earnhardt to a T here. If you followed me from the time I got up Monday morning at four o'clock to the time I got in the race car on Sunday, I believe you'd be tired. I do work out, but I stay active too, whether it be signing autographs and doing my paperwork and answering my business mail at four o'clock on Monday morning to working until seven or eight that evening, having dinner and going to bed. I work out on Tuesday. 
I don't work out on Monday because I'm resting up from Sunday. And this was basically a Q and a, and, and it was yeah. compiling all the questions and answers that Dale had had. And Ty Norris, who was in Ty Norris, that that's a record for Ty Norris mentions <laughs> <laughs> in this issue, Ty Norris, who was working for RJ Reynolds at the time, he finally stepped in and said that Dale could take one more question to which Dale replied, Hey, you brought me up here and now you want to take me away. Heck, these guys are good to which Ty replied. Okay. You tell me when you're ready to go. And Dale shot back. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. If you ask me <laughs> speaking of Dale and working out, he was always working. He had that working farm. He had a chicken farm. He had, of course, later on his own team. The man's time was just constantly in demand for a time in the 1980s. There was a Dale Earnhardt Wrangler ad on the back cover of Winston Cup scene, Grand National scene at that time. And it was Dale working out with weights. And I got to imagine that as hard as he worked on the farm and, and as fast as he was going in a million different directions, I just can't picture Dale Earnhardt working out with weights very I often. I saw him personally do it. I never saw him do it. But yeah. that doesn't mean to say he didn't do it. Yeah, he did his workout on the farm and the tractor and all that kind of stuff. So, Steve, <laughs> there was a little bit of a firestorm or some other kind of storm, if you catch my drift. <laughs> I do catch it. <laughs> created when security guards at Charlotte stopped competitors going into the infield and charged them anywhere from 5 to $20 to park in the infield. I don't know what happened there. Now, Junior Johnson got hit up, Bill Davis, Harry Hyde, Bobby Hamilton, Jimmy Hensley, Elmo Langley. Elmo Langley was the NASCAR pace car driver. Pace driver, yeah. <laughs> Rodney Pickler, who was the truck driver for Joe Gibbs Racing and Dale Jarrett at the time, he had taken his pickup truck to get groceries for the team. And when he got back, he was charged $12 to get into the infield and then had to park between turns three and four, and it took him three trips to get all the groceries to the hauler. What kind of a mood do you think he might've been in at that time? <laughs> During the driver's meeting prior to the Winston select Doug Stafford, who was Charlotte's vice president of events, he apologized and said that it was a misunderstanding and said that people with a competitor's parking pass would be refunded their money. But that's what didn't jibe with me was that not everybody was charged the same amount. It said the range That's, was anywhere from five to $20 and Rodney Pickler had been charged 12 bucks and somebody else was charged 10. So how do you know what to refund to who? What makes the whole thing shaky? I think somebody concocted a plan to make some nice pocket money. Junior Johnson. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there and saw somebody trying to charge junior Johnson to get into a racetrack. <laughs> now that would have been worth it. I would have paid the 20 bucks just, just to it. watch that show. Right. <laughs> Me too. I'd be right there with you. <laughs> junior said, I'm just going to wait until they need one of my drivers. And then there'll be $5,000 an hour. <laughs> I didn't pay anything and I'm not going to pay anything. I pay my dues to NASCAR and that's all I'm going to pay. And he's exactly right about that. That's the way <laughs> he should have been treated. 
And Steve, in this week's installment of Felix Sabatis being Felix Sabatis. Oh, boy. <laughs> a couple of weeks before, NASCAR had extended the Pontiac body by four and three quarters inches. And Steve, I don't know if that look, I don't know if that was right. Four I and three quarters know. inches is a lot. At times, it has been hard to understand NASCAR's technical thinking. This is one of them. Yeah. Well, four and three quarters inches, nearly five inches. That's, I mean, that's a stretch limo. So anyway, I look, I'm not an engineer, so I don't know if it was a typo or what it was, but the issue reported that the Pontiac body had been extended by four and three quarters inches. And the year before Rusty Wallace had driven a Penske racing South Pontiac to 10 wins before the team switched to Ford for the 1994 season. Now, I, if you win 10 races in a year, why in the world are you changing to any other make? But evidently Rusty felt like it was going to be a big help to the Pontiacs. Rusty actually, <laughs> Rusty actually made the comment. I'll tell you what, if I had that car right now, it wouldn't be any competition. I'd drive away from every sucker out there, hands down. Rusty added that Pontiacs would lap the field in 50 laps at Charlotte. Okay? Well, and that got Felix's attention. I can imagine. <laughs> Felix called a press conference at Charlotte, and he said, I would like to challenge Rusty Wallace and the Penske Racing South team to drive a Pontiac for the Coca-Cola 600. Rusty may come to Sabco Racing and select any car he wants. We will provide an engine, or he may obtain one from an outside source. And Steve, here's the kicker. Okay. Felix added, if Rusty can manage to lap the field in 50 laps in a Pontiac, I will give him $1 million in cash. And Felix meant it. Not only did Felix mean it, Felix brought the money to the press conference. That's why I said he did it. <laughs> so not only did he put his money where his mouth was, he put his money in the infield media center. Now, I don't know how smart that was to leave that much cash laying around where, with, a bunch of, <laughs> with a bunch of media members. <laughs> but he brought it to the press conference. He wasn't done yet. Later in the day, talking about this offer, this challenge or whatever, Felix also laughingly, and I think he was joking, he laughingly challenged Ford's Lee Morse to a bare-knuckle brawl. <laughs> Felix was on a roll. I'm Felix was serious. So Rusty replied to all this. He said, Felix is a good guy, but he comes up with some ridiculous crap once in a while. They've got a good team but they always seem to run good when he's not around. So maybe he'll <laughs> stay away the rest, the rest of the week. Okay. For the record, Rusty finished second in the Coca-Cola 600 in a Ford. So he did not go for the million dollars. All right. The highest finish in Pontiac was Michael Waltrip in 10th place, three laps down. Phyllis's drivers, Bobby Hamilton and Kyle Petty finished 17th and 26th respectively. Well, so much for lapping the field in 50 laps. In my 
Hey, I'm Dalen Hart Jr., and you're listening to the Scene Ball Podcast. So, Steve, up next in next week's episode, the interview is going to be Tommy Houston. Good one. A good one. <laughs> and Tommy is absolutely just a salt of the earth, down home kind of guy. He is just like everybody else. You know, people like Tommy Houston, just good old boys, just as pleasant as they can possibly be. Awesome senses of humor. He's just a good guy. Absolutely. I mean, the Tommy Houston I know doesn't have an enemy. Everybody's a friend. Now, Steve, just as a preview, here is a clip from our conversation. Well, Tommy, first things first, once and for all, I think we need to go ahead and make the announcement that you are, in fact, my dad. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times over the years have I been asked how we're related. Listen, that was just a joke. We are not related, at least not close enough to borrow money. <laughs> well, well, that's that's true. You know, I think uh, when did we meet? We met back in the it was the 90s. early nineties. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking it was early nineties, something like that. And uh, I said, "Well, where did he come from?" Uh, you know, I didn't. <laughs> all the Houston's <laughs> over around Hickory. You know. Well, at least you didn't ask Tommy if he was your grandfather. <laughs> Steve, obviously, with both of our names being Houston and both of us being involved in NASCAR, I couldn't tell you how many times I've been asked how I'm related to Tommy. And the fact is, we're not. Not that no. I know of. I, I, I don't know. Maybe somewhere in the woodpile we are. But as far as I know, we're not related. But the fact is, you got to give Tommy a little bit of a hard time. Sure. <laughs> You know something, Tommy, to me, talking about family relationships, is probably the kind of guy that would be everybody's favorite uncle. I, I lost, I lost you about halfway through that thought. All right, and, I, and I'm showing, I'm showing my signal's good, so I don't, I don't know what's going on. Mine I, says it's unstable, but up here it's showing strong. Okay, all right. I'll start over again. Okay, uh, just pick up maybe about halfway through. Uh, I'll just start over. Okay, all right. Yeah.